0: Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh, and I am joined today by a very special guest. I know I say that a lot, but in this case, <laughs> the guest is very, very special. Uh, a dear friend that I've known for almost two decades, who has led a very interesting life. One, someone who is probably more open and honest and revealing about himself than just about anyone else I know. Let me welcome Tim Taylor. Tim, say hello.
1: Wow, what a I heard people say this too. What a fabulous introduction. It's like it's it is a little unnerving to hear you say it without hearing the intro music, but that's okay. I can handle it because we'll we'll tag that on in the end. But I I love you a ton, man. It's, It's like my pleasure to come on and chop it up with you, chat with you. I'm coming in with some pretty uh, heavy, uh, heavy others that are joining the podcast. And I think that us getting together and just talking things through is going to be a joy. Can't wait for it.
0: Now, we first have to tackle the issue of your name, Tim Taylor. This is, of course, (laughs) made very famous by the television show Home Improvement, played by Tim Allen back in the 1990s. What was it like in the 1990s when that show came on the air? What happened to your life? And did you ever think to yourself, you bastard Tim Allen, couldn't you just call yourself Tim Allen the show? Like a normal being, like a
1: normal human being? Well, I want you to know that I'm a fairly good creative writer and I have pitched many shows of of Home Improvement 2.0 with the Ye family, where like Chris Ye would be the the Home Improvement guy. But, uh, you know, the, the, it's funny you ask about it because I remember it was early 90s. I moved out to San Francisco. I moved out to San Francisco. So when I, I'm, from, I'm from Indiana, the Midwest. And I flew out here and I arrived one morning with my family. We came up to visit and because we, we had moved to L.A. I came up to visit. I arrived in the morning. About 1 o'clock that day, I turned to my parents. I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life here because I knew right away that I wanted to spend the rest of my life here. And by the way, just so our listeners know, Chris Yeh is a noted San Francisco, what would we call you? San Francisco... Hater. Disliker?
0: <laughs> the term is hater, right? Taylor Swift said it herself, haters going to hate, hate,
1: <laughs> hate, 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 hate. But just just so we know the generosity of Chris Ye, he does hate it. You were there for my 50th birthday party. I want you to know that. Or well, it was... It was someone who looked like you. I'm not sure whether you hired, <laughs> hired a doppelganger to show up. But well, this is there. actually um, a great
0: story. So I can't wait to tell this. So for Tim's 50th birthday, he had this fantastic birthday celebration. It was up in San Francisco. And I drove up to San Francisco and I couldn't find any parking. This was before we had things like Spot Hero to find parking for you. So I was literally driving around and around and I'd been driving for about 25 minutes. And I was just about to get to the point where I'm like, screw it, I just can't make it. Sorry, Tim, I just, I I tried to come to your birthday party. I circled for 25 minutes, I couldn't find parking. When I suddenly saw these folks pulling out of a street parking spot, half a block away from the venue where I could park for free. So it was clearly divine intervention that brought me to your 50th birthday party. But I'm so glad I was there because this is something that I think everyone should experience. You had a video that uh, went over your life that had your various friends talking about what you meant to them. And you had tears streaming down your face. And I leaned over and I told you, Tim, you got to soak this up. Normally you got to be dead to hear people saying things like this about you.
1: (laughs) God, you said that. That's right. This is a great thing to say to somebody on their 50th birthday like thank God you're not dead. Like that's, I I really appreciate that. I did soak it up. uh, And um, So the um, So when I moved out here, I I worked for a big accounting firm and made like $27,000 a year. And that was, I felt like I was rich beyond imagination. And I remember I came home one night after working And this, our TV, we had this little TV, I lived with my brother's brother's roommate from University of Michigan. And I just TV on, and Home Improvement was on, I'd never seen the show because it was brand new. And I remember hearing the home, the family was called the Taylors. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then I heard Tim Allen's character was named Tim. And I was like, that is awesome. Tim Taylor. That is awesome. And I heard his nickname was tool, man. I was like, okay, whatever. I'm telling you for the next, because it got really popular. That show was, it was super the number popular. one show on television. That was number one show on television. And, yeah. and I am the least handy person ever, like literally the least handy person ever. And um, I, the, what, what happened was that for the next, probably 10 years, it was popular for a long time too. Every time I called a, because that was back in the days where you would call a place and there was a front operating desk and they would answer the phone and then decide to send you on to somebody else. They would say, can I ask who's calling? And I would say, it's Tim. She, they, he or she would go, what's your last name? I'd go, my name's Tim Taylor. There was always a five second silence on the phone. And she, they would ask, you mean like the tool man, you know what I'm saying? I'm telling, I heard that thousands of times, thousands of times. And so the, uh, it, it was fun until I'd heard it like 50,000 times. And then, then it got a little, a little, uh, a little grating. but you know what? I I suppose the only other Tim Taylor that was famous was some random hockey coach from Detroit. So I guess if I'm going to take a claim to fame, I'll, I'll take it from, from a home improvement and you, you're like my Wilson sometimes, let's face it, you're like my Wilson because the number of calls we've had over the years, which is just what this conversation is, has been, been, you know, it's been really meaningful. And I appreciate you saying that I'm open because I am an open guy and um, open hearted too. And so I'm willing to talk about pretty much whatever. And um, I'm happy to, you know, to talk to you about that stuff.
0: And the listeners can't see this, but because of the way I record these podcasts, I literally look like Wilson. The bottom half of my face is covered up as I'm speaking into a soundproofing hutch. So it really is very much like the real home improvement.
1: Well, I, you know, I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, where I, like, I'm pretty sure that was you at my party. I just want you to know, literally two days ago, I was walking down the street, and I saw somebody who looks exactly like you like literally exactly like you. And I, I was thinking about it. There's nobody in my life, like actually I should say, you are at the top, like you're, at the Mount, you're on the Mount Rushmore of the people in my life who I, like I see a doppelganger. I actually sent you a picture a while ago with someone who looked like you because I had him take a picture of me, go, you look exactly like, in fact, I said Chris, I thought it was you, just so you know. I think there's a lot of people out there that look like you, but none that act like you and think like you, which is, which is just a special thing. So that's a winner.
0: Well, I will tell you something you can do it later is you can look up pictures of Yo-Yo Ma when he was younger and you will see a distinct resemblance as well. This is something that my family always comments on.
1: That she looked like Yo-Yo Ma?
0: Yeah, go, go get a couple of pictures of Yo-Yo Ma from when he's younger. He's a little older now, lost a bit more hair, so it's harder to see the resemblance but check it out, you'll see a shocking resemblance.
1: Um, wait, so are you a classical music
0: fan? No. Okay. So I was forced I... to play classical music as a child, but that did not make me a fan.
1: Wait, so was there pressure because you look like Yo-Yo Ma to play classical music well?
0: No, there was pressure for me to play classical music because I'm Chinese and because <laughs> I have no athletic talent and I have to do something to get into college. But rest assured, once those acceptance letters came in, I put that violin away and I never touched it again.
1: (laughs) Do you still have it? You don't have it, right?
0: I don't have it. The kids actually played violin for a while. God knows why. I told them they didn't have to. I swore I would never force my children to learn a musical instrument. And I swore I'd never force them to go to Chinese school. Marisa actually voluntarily tried each of them and then decided I was right and that they were a terrible idea.
1: Which one did she figure out quicker that she didn't like, violin or Chinese school?
0: I would say Chinese school.
1: Okay. I don't even know what Chinese school is. School ah,
0: way. see this is because you are a white devil and have never experienced this <laughs> yourself.
1: Well, I mean, when the I don't yellow know man devil, comes, but to, I
0: am the problem. <laughs> when the yellow man comes to your country, uh, what he tries to do is to maintain the culture of the old world. And this uh-huh. is done by taking kids and having them take classes on Saturday mornings, exactly the right time that kids want to do more homework. <laughs> so as I was growing up, in addition to regular school, I would then spend my Friday nights doing Chinese school homework so I could then go to class on Saturday mornings and therefore not get to see any cartoons. Oh, So you can understand Did you ever why care? I hated Chinese.
1: Huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not as big a deal now because cartoons are on all the time, but I do get the thing you're trying to say to me. Because I, I played cello when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And I went and saw Yo-Yo Ma this one time.
0: And he's a brilliant, okay? brilliant musician.
1: Incredible, right? But here's the deal. I, that's why I asked you whether you like classical music. I think there's a bunch of people out there who say they like classical music who cannot name a single piece of classical music. They can't do it. Okay? So I'm in there with this huge crowd. I don't know, 700, 800, whatever, a thousand people in the San Francisco, um, whatever that's called, the uh, orchestra, whatever that, wherever the orchestra plays, that's where it was. Beautiful night. Everybody's all dressed up. He's been playing for a while. People are nodding off around me. I'm paying attention to that. And he's playing these magnificent pieces of which most of which I, I don't recognize because even though I played, I don't know. But he asked the audience to give a recommendation of what he should play next. And nobody said anything. Like no one said anything. I'm surprised you You didn't say something. Well, I don't have anything to offer. The only one I know is Ave Maria. Like I love that song. And like when you start playing a song, you know, it's like, Oh, yeah, I like that one. You know what I mean? I I really enjoyed that one. But it's like, I don't know what it's called. What I know the Freebird. Abbey Maria. I, swear, I almost said Freebird. I almost said it. But it's like if you're at a Rolling Stones concert and they played 60% of their portfolio and they yell out in the, in the San Francisco Music Hall, do you have any requests? A bunch of people are going to say things it's just it's it's my um it's it's just my point of view that there that 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 happens to be one area where people have to act like they like the thing but they actually know very little about the thing you know what i mean
0: yeah no it's it's part of an image that they have i love right. classical music i enjoy gardening i do all these different <laughs> things that you know i that i learn about by watching pbs and it's all part of the whole thing. And again, there's many good things to be said about PBS, about gardening, about classical music. Yes. But if you don't like them, you don't like them. I, like, I went to so many classical music concerts that I was dragged to that I tried deliberately to sleep through. I'm like, this is not interesting to me. Let me attempt to escape into unconsciousness because then at least I can use time later on. It's like a time machine. If I fall asleep for an hour or two, it'll be over <laughs> faster. And then I'll have an extra hour or two that I can use later on.
1: Yeah, and I, I just, like, I can't, and people send me stuff, and I've, I've, I've listened to some, like, like videos, and are cool, it's, but it's like, I walk out of, a, um, I walk out of a, uh, a classical, like, performance, and I can't name a single thing that just happened. It's just like, it's as good as people, like, tuning instruments, whatever. There's people who really enjoy it, God bless them. I just don't happen to be one of them. And, um, and so anyway, so I, play, I played the cello for a couple of years, and um, you know, here's the deal. So I played the cello for a couple of years. I don't know if I've ever told you this. I
0: don't but you know like you're first... ever telling me about the cello. So I think this is a Okay, story.
1: this is new. And by the way, I saw a movie where Woody Allen played cello, but he played cello in the marching band. I remember so was... that
0: movie. I think it's Take the Money and Run.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It's... I think it's also the one where he walks up to the to rob the bank and he says, I have, I a, have a gun, but he... <laughs> I <have> a <laughs> But, so, so, um, you know about first chair, second chair, that kind of stuff? Of course. Got it. Okay. So I was second chair cello, right? But there were two of us. Okay? So I was second chair. It still sounds good. (laughs) It does sound good. But here's the deal. The guy who was first chair, his name was Donald, he'll never, he'll never hear this. His name was Donald Marty. Um, I remember him really well. He was an avowed, I was in a public school in the Midwest. He was an avowed communist. And so he, he would have this notebook he would bring in, and before he would have these really dramatic scenes drawn of like planes attacking stuff and like, you know, and he, and, uh, and he had this thing where um, if anybody was chewing gum in the room, he, he vomited. That's unfortunate. I've never heard of that condition before and have never heard of it since. I assume he's moved to was, Singapore. I, I don't know. That's actually a great place to live, right? If you don't if you're want somebody to chew gum around you. Absolutely. And so, um, so, um, he, uh, so there was one time where a kid specifically brought in gum because they want, because we'd heard it wasn't allowed, so nobody did it. But then some kid brought it in once and was across, he was in the, um, Violin section. It was across the way because it was. I think it went cello, viola, violin, and to the left of us were were the um, bass players. And one of the bass players, my best friend, um, who I used to get in trouble with all the time. Yeah, the bass players teacher, are bad boys. He's a bad boy, and our our, our teacher was he was Rocco Germano. Man, the guy was crazy. Anyway, so he was a ways away. He chewed gum and he made the guy throw up. And so I was never better than the uh, than the bubblegum puking communist first chair, Donald Marty. I played yep. it for a couple of years. And you know what the thing is, Chris, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I had piano, I learned piano too. And I remember um, my mom said this to me cause I used to be able to read music like I could read a book. And I remember her saying to me, you're gonna forget this. I was like, how is that possible? This I know what music looks like. And um, literally like six months later, I went to sit down and play and I had no idea how to do it. I tried to pick up piano about 15 years ago, and it didn't work out really well. Mm. So, you know, the thing is, it, is, 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 is like, occurs to me, like, um, you talk to your friend Ray, who's, like, really accomplished, and Michelle recently, who's done all these amazing things, and and uh, is it is it Richard Tedlow? Actually, yes. Richard Tedlow. I just want to say something about Richard. So I saw a picture of him because I, I looked him up. And I had heard your podcast with Ray, where you're doing the dumb book, which is a great idea. Like, I, that's just, I'm a little offended that I wasn't invited, but I, I want you to know it's an amazing idea because when you're talking dumb, I'm your guy. Thank you. Because um, um, I, I, I am dumber than you. I, I, I want you to, I want the group, the, 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 let me just finish the thought on Richard real quick. I, I saw him and I said to myself, he looks erudite. But I wasn't sure what erudite meant.
0: But you knew it meant and not so I,
1: dumb. <laughs> right? Right, because I went to the Too many syllables. Through. Too many syllables.
0: It can't be dumb. <laughs>
1: right. Right, so I didn't want to come on to your podcast and say that Richard was erudite, and that mean, like, he has, like, he has, like, a Swedish Um, like he has Swedish in his background, like it's some part of Sweden, like the erudites, you know what I mean? Like, so there's some biblical part of the Norse, the Norse area, that whole Norse area. So I read erudite and I was like, there should just be a picture of that guy next to erudite because that perfectly defines him. But
0: absolutely, um, you know, I've read a lot of books, but I can't even come close to the amount of reading that Richard has done in his lifetime. And I'm someone who could read a book a day very easily.
1: Why do you think he does wait, are you saying because he's read more because he's older. Like he graduated from Harvard like 49. That's true. He
0: is, you know, I don't even know Ruck was around back then. He does have a 30-year head start on me, to be fair. And he is a business historian. So of course he has read more business history than I have.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. So because you're you are a for those of you who don't know, Chris he's a best selling author. Come on, yes. Yes, no, so absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I, yes, I, I, absolutely.
0: I'm, I'm just saying that's obvious, so I don't need to
1: confirm it. <laughs> so, and you're talking about, yeah, I heard the project with Ray. So, if you could write a book about anything you wanted, mm. and it, because you're, you're, you have a really curious mind and you see things a different way than I do. Well, like if you could take a topic or Like, what would it be? Like, what would you, and you you know, it'd get published and you know, it would have the impact that you want it to have. What would the book be? There
0: are actually three that have been swimming around in my brain for a while that Mm -hmm. I've never had the occasion to put out. But the three books are, first of all, a book on entrepreneurial psychology and how to manage it. Because I've seen many entrepreneurs suffer great mental health problems over the years. Yeah. It's a very stressful job. And I feel like I have a good grasp on what goes into it and what are the different things you should do. The second book is a book where I actually own a domain name for which it might be useful. It's called Chief Dad Officer. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. You told me about that one. I love it. And Chief Dad Officer is about how you can actually balance the demands of fatherhood with the busy demands of the fast paced modern life. And how is it that you can actually make this work out? Yeah. And the third is just an overall book about, well, how do you find the meaning in your life? Because I feel like most people do not do a good enough job figuring out how to bring meaning to their lives. They go for a bunch of defaults. They end up on the treadmill of hedonic satisfaction and accomplishment and all these different things. And I would love for people to come to understand that you can find greater happiness. And in fact, if you do so, you'll probably find greater success. Not the greatest levels of success, mind you, because I don't believe that you can be someone who changes the world and still be at the top decile of happiness. But I do think that you can accomplish quite a bit while still being in
1: that category. You don't think you can be a happy person who is at the top decile of the world?
0: I don't think that you could be at the top, I don't believe that you can be a world changing person and be in the top decile of happiness, the 90th percentile or above. It requires too much sacrifice. It requires too much willingness to give up the things that really matter in life. Like those people who are going to change the world, they're usually sacrificing their family. They're usually sacrificing friendship. They're sacrificing a lot of things along the way. You can go and look up even figures that we think of as saintly, like Gandhi, who's a terrible father, terrible husband.
1: Yeah. So I want, I want to just talk. Can we talk about them? Yeah, can we talk sure. About those? Sure. Okay, cool. Because the one, the one that, the, like, I want. We can talk about each of them, but the like, the, the first and third kind of relate to each other, I think.
0: They they are very um, similar.
1: Well, it's, it's just like you're coming out, like like. Different. The first angles. one is like different angles, but like the first one's like through a kind of a specific lens, because I, I I work I've worked. I've worked with startups for a lot of years, but the um. It's curious to me because you're saying, the psychological impact it has. And let's just talk, let's just agree that it's like first time entrepreneurs because they tend to be scientists. They tend to be technologists. They tend to, not always, but they tend to have a very specific deep skill set of knowing something. Um, and is, do you think that the psychological impact is because just the the stress of someone who's skilled at something being put into a world where it's so competitive and they're the decision maker and they get all the like what
0: cuz mental health
1: means something to me right
0: so man i think that it there are a couple there the main the main culprit when it comes to entrepreneurial psychology is the tendency for the entrepreneur to identify with their company yeah. and it's very natural for them to do that because it we often say oh it's my baby for example they yeah. invest their emotional energy into their company they could hardly succeed as an entrepreneur without investing some of their emotional energy. Can you imagine someone who's like, I'm going to start a company. I don't really care whether it succeeds or fails. And I don't really care about what it does. That's not an entrepreneur. Have you ever met an entrepreneur who was like that?
1: No. Very rarely. Never, never the second one. Sometimes the first one, they're a little bit more balanced about whether it succeeds or fails. They know the game going into it. Right. But that, that's also But uncommon, they still care. So. They usually still. They yeah. prefer. Yeah, something. they care. They care. Yeah. They want to succeed.
0: And so as you invest all this emotional energy into the outcomes, it becomes very easy to forget that you have an existence independent of the company. That's the biggest problem that entrepreneurs face. They lose sight of themselves. They subordinate their own health, their own identity to the identity of the company. And they may only realize what's happened too late. Yeah. There are many, many examples of this, you know, tragic examples. Entrepreneurs I've known who've taken their own life because of various reverses along the way that they just couldn't face. When in fact, they were talented individuals who could easily have remade their lives, who had people who cared about them, but -hmm. they had become so all consumed with this image of themselves that tied in with being a quote unquote successful entrepreneur that they couldn't see all the things they had to live for. Do you think that's,
1: that's worse than it was 20 years ago? Like I, I just, I, I, I some. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go all ahead.
0: mental health issues are worse than they were 20 years ago, primarily because of the rise of social media.
1: Okay. We're on the same page. Yeah. Cause I follow VC Twitter sometimes and, or startup Twitter sometimes. It's like, I don't know how they do it. I literally don't. Like, I don't know, I, when they put that, their screen down, I don't know what kind of people they actually are, but it, it, it seems to me that there's more pressure on it because it's more known or whatever, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, well, there you are, in some sense, a celebrity without the benefits of traditional celebrity. Right. <laughs> right. We, we talk about, you know, again, we go back, dial back 20, 25 years. If you are a celebrity, if you're Elizabeth Taylor, your various foibles are being dissected on television and people are gossiping and talking about you. And that's really unfortunate. But you can sort of console yourself with the fact that you're immensely rich and famous and powerful. And in the world we've created with social media, there may be people criticizing you, gossiping about you, tearing you down, saying all sorts of horrible things about you. And you didn't even get the benefit of being rich and famous. You're still your own pathetic self, except people
1: are tearing you down. God, you're making it really dark to be an entrepreneur, Chris. Like, or maybe, that's, maybe that's, that's the motivation. And I'm like, hey, listen, the Chris Yeh way. Like, let's try a new way. And, at it with a different level of mental
0: health well as you know one of my superpowers in life is that i just sound really reassuring people <laughs> feel better after talking with me if you analyze some of these conversations you might say wait a minute you didn't actually say anything i'm like i know i didn't i have no idea why it works <laughs> well what i like about
1: the way you said it is you, said you sound reassuring yeah, Which actually doesn't mean you are reassuring. It just means you sound reassuring.
0: Well, it, I guess it get boils down to the old saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I guess it is a duck. If people it must feel, be a duck. If people feel reassured, if they're able to then carry on and and return to the fray with greater energy and inspiration, then I guess I reassured them.
1: Well, so, so because the last book that you talked about, which, um, you know, is is more uh, bold and broad. It's an interesting thing because uh, it reminds me, like, do you think that like, do you think there's material out there that gets it right? And people just don't, it just doesn't land for whatever reason. Yeah. You know what I'm saying it's like, yes. How many books, movies, songs, poems, whatever programs about the meaning of life have we seen. And for whatever reason, we still struggle with it. So like, what do you think they have? Do you think someone has it right and just no one's listening? Or do you just think they have it wrong and you think that you have a different way to say it?
0: I think they have it right and nobody's listening. So it's not like my ideas around meaning and its impact on psychology are things that I created with primary research. I don't have a bunch of surveys that I'm running on college undergraduates to give me this information. Yeah. The people who study in the field of positive psychology that was originated by Martin Seligman with practitioners like Senya Maiman and so on and so forth, Sonia lyubov all of these people have written books, but they are at heart academics and they write books that even if they become somewhat popular, somehow have never fully cracked through to the broader mainstream. And meanwhile, you can write something complete bullshit like The Secret and apparently tens of millions of people will buy it. So right. I think that you know, the answer is, as I often tell people, you have to figure out the right way to market things. And there are so many things in life where there is the right thing to do and people just do a piss poor job of marketing it. So for example, everyone knows that the right thing for people to do from an investing perspective is index funds. Yeah. But they're very boring. And the people who are enthusiasts for index funds are even boringer than the index funds themselves. They call themselves bogleheads, and they'll spend all their time talking about how if you can reduce the fees by another 15 basis points over the course of 50 years, that will change your retirement income from... 1.5 1.5 million dollars to 2.5 million dollars and isn't that incredible and meanwhile people right. have fallen asleep all the way along
1: and that's right I think that like you, you can, at the, like you at the orchestra
0: yes and I think you can look at someone like my friend Ramit Sethi
1: who yes, has Ramit. you know
0: what I'm going to bring some attitude and some marketing and some swagger to this and yes. by doing so, he's reached a different audience, right? He doesn't reach the Susie Orman audience; he reaches his own separate audience and has an impact on them. And I think that the same sort of thing can be done on the psychology side. So you think
1: that, like your your vision is bringing swag like Ramit brings to. He brings it more on finance, but it's like bringing swag to meaning of life. Not necessarily swag,
0: but marketing, right? Everyone's got to market themselves in a particular way. I don't think I could market myself the way that Remit markets himself. It's an outgrowth of his natural personality. He enjoys trolling people online in a way that (laughs) exceeds, I mean, I I have some enjoyment of tweaking people, but I don't have that like fundamental, I just want and love to piss people off. And so it would have to be different, but it could be done. And again, it all boils down to how do you sell it? It's the old saying Hewlett Packard, famous company in Silicon Valley, the godfathers of Silicon Valley, as somebody put it, if Hewlett Packard were to sell sushi, they would market it as cold dead fish. <laughs> oh, and good. far too often, the things that are meaningful in this world are marketed as cold dead fish instead of as, instead of as, the classic cuisine of refined imperial japan one of the most delicate flavors in the world something that is healthy for you something that will leave you feeling refreshed and actually improve your sense of wonder your energy levels and possibly we're not making this claim because it can't be backed up your sexual vitality
1: right exactly (laughs) claims are made around that all the time without any backing but um no, it's it's uh it's just an interesting set of uh considerations because they both have it's like in order for a meaning of life to be taken on like on a broader basis you have to be you have to convince people that having a meaning of life would be actually like having some meaning there would be helpful it's sort of like in those moments of darkness we we realize that but um uh I just want to touch on the last one one mm-hmm. more for a second the chief dad officer because that's like a You've made some really specific choices in your life. That's right.
0: I've made How do you specific feel about choices. Those choices? Uh, mm-hmm. I feel comfortable with them. They were choices that I made, knowing the odds going in. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the the basic choice that I made, and what it boiled down to was in the two thousands, back when my children were still very young, I began thinking about this and looking into it and trying to wrestle with the notion of what am I willing to sacrifice. Yeah, And this was rammed home for me when I had a dinner with uh, Ray Lane, who was formerly the COO of Oracle, who was then a venture capitalist with Kleiner Perkins. And Ray was an enormously successful guy. He had come out of Bain. He had helped turn Oracle around. He'd made colossal amounts of money. And I had this dinner with him where he talked about the sacrifices he made. He's like, you know, I was a bad husband. I was a bad father. I barely know my daughter. She doesn't like me. And, you know, now I've, I've turned my life around. I'm working here at Kleiner Perkins. I get up and I work out with my, my, uh, with my, my younger daughter now and my new wife and mm-hmm. I'm home at 6 p.m. every night and I spend time with the family. And I heard this story and I thought it was very inspiring. And then yeah. I asked Ray, so Ray, I mean, would you do it differently now that you know, now that you've experienced this? And he looked at me and I'll never forget this. He said, no, I do it all the same. I couldn't have accomplished the things I accomplished without making those sacrifices. And that was a moment when I looked at that and I said, you know what? I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but even if I do, I'm not making the same choice. That's not a choice I'm willing to make. I'm not willing to have a starter family. I'm not willing to write off a marriage and a child. That's not me. And you know, I was fortunate enough I also was in contact with another legendary business figure, Bill George, who is a professor emeritus now, I believe, at Harvard Business School. And before that well, he was the CEO of Medtronic.
1: Yes. And, and 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 you know, props to anybody who's got a, a first name and last name that are both first. George. That's just, I, I, I never met him, but I already like him. Bill, Bill George. You know what I'm saying? Like,
0: it's just, it's <laughs> like Lawrence
1: Frank, the, the, the guy who co- used to coach the Nets, like Lawrence Frank, like, come on, you got to like Bill George. It's hard not to like a guy named Bill George. That's the only point that I'm
0: making. I actually do like both the two first name approach and the two last name approach. <laughs> <laughs> who's got a, who got a two last name? Like well, to... you know, for example, uh, a great, a great example of a two last name approach is anybody whose first name is Washington. So like, let's say your name is Washington Jackson. I'm like, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's less common, but more notable because it's less common. Yeah. Anyway, so Bill George, who was- So Bill
0: George, CEO of Medtronic. At the time that I spoke with him about this, he was CEO of Medtronic. This is one of the yeah. powers of being uh, an alum of Harvard Business School. And you know this, and yeah. you know, Wharton Business School. Yeah. I reached out to Bill George and actually got on the phone with him just randomly, this was during the time when I was thinking about Chief Dad Officer and some of these different things. Yeah. I talked with Bill about it. And I described to him the interaction I had with Ray Lane. And Bill said, you know what, don't listen to him. <laughs> Here I am, I'm running a Fortune 500 company. Yes, yeah. big freaking deal. And this is a company that makes stuff to save lives. It's life or death. But you yeah. know what? I have been to every one of my kids' soccer games. If that means oh, I leave the office at three and I have to do some work later on, so be it. And you know what? When they see me leave the office at three, that means they know that they can do that too. Right. And so don't believe that you can't do great things and still be a good father. Yeah. Which was very heartening.
1: And yeah. I like
0: to believe that. And I like to believe I've done some pretty cool things. Yeah. I still a good father. But I was willing to make the choice to not do great things, if it was going to cost me my family.
1: Yes, I get it. You know, all three of them actually, like they loop together like that. That Now that you've said that thing, that actually brings both of those other ones into it.
0: Yeah.
1: There's a, like a meaning of life element to it. And there's also like a psychology mental health part to it, particularly with startups, who It's like one thing if you're Bill George, and you're running Medtronic, it's another thing if you're giving it's just exactly what you're just saying it's like another thing if you're giving yourself up to it and you know six months later you shut the doors because most startups fail anyway you know what i'm saying and it's exactly. like I, I just gave up you know two years of my life and my son or daughter's eight and nine years old um their years for something that yeah but i guess that's part of the gig i don't know
0: But And by the way, I I made this decision. I sought other ways to have an impact, but I explicitly made a decision in 2008 that I would never go be a CEO again.
1: You'll never be a CEO again.
0: Never be a CEO again. At the time I made the decision, I didn't say never. I told myself I will not be a CEO again until the children are much older and where they don't need the kind of time that they need right now. But you know, after having spent my time doing other things, I eventually said, you know what? I don't have an itch to be CEO. The only reason yeah. I would ever want to be CEO is to test out my management theories. And I'm like, you know, that is like the worst reason to be CEO. <laughs> That's like... It's horrible. It's that's, a terrible reason to be... That's, that's like the Truman Show or something, man. Exactly. I'm like, or like, 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 like experimenting, experimenting on my my employees. <laughs> no, that's a terrible reason. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to subject myself to the pain of being CEO. Because as you know, I famously say, if you're a caring and responsible individual, being a CEO is the worst job in the world. And sadly for me, I'm caring and responsible.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is... That is a real character flaw of yours. But if it's you're just, a sociopath,
0: it's, it's the best job in the world.
1: It's, the, it's actually a differentiator. It's a competitive differentiator. That's um, why there's so many sociopathic CEOs because
0: it doesn't cost them to be CEO. So of course they gravitate towards it. Whereas the caring responsible person has to decide to make a sacrifice to be CEO.
1: Well, it certainly brings to mind the difficulty of, because a lot of those people are people of extraordinary means. And, and in somewhat, you know, the just two examples you brought up, Ray and Bill, it's like, I'd love to know their children because the, the thing is, is that, um, you know, it, it's, it's like super duper simple for me. It's like life, life is super duper simple, particularly parents who have kids. It's super duper simple. Just work on your own stuff. I'm not going to swear. I, 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 asked you about swearing. I was giving <laughs> the approval to swear. But that was a moment I would have sworn where I you would didn't.
0: have said something other than stuff in
1: other words I would have said something other than stuff. Um, I, in fact, interestingly enough, I watched Goodfellas last night, but it was, it was Goodfellas on like one of the regular channels, so they couldn't do all the swearing. It's just not as enjoyable. I'm sorry, Goodfellas without swearing, it's just not as enjoyable. It's um, like
0: watching an Eddie Murphy movie or an Eddie Murphy comedy routine without swearing. It's like mm, right
1: something's missing. It's just not as, as well, I mean, the, the thing is, like, in comedy, it's, like, that literally the K, like, the F and the K actually make people laugh, just that sound. But it's just, it's, it's just weird to, like, have, you know, Joe Pesci, like, really violently killing somebody, but all his swear words that he says when he's killing them, you know, freaking, it, it turns into freaking instead of, you know, I'm saying it's just not as impactful. But um, anyway, so, like... I just think that uh, working, like, as a parent, it's, like, crucial to work on ourselves. And I would love to know from those, too. But it's, like, that's the hardest thing because, you know, it's, like, there's all this discussion. Like, like we were talking earlier about mental health, and we're both NBA fans. And, like, Paul George, who I think is awesome to watch, he was playing horribly. And then he came out and said, I'm having mental problems with – And emotional challenges with being in this bubble. And of this pandemic, the thing that I would say that is only loosely associated with, well, actually specifically associated with the third book, but loosely associated in general with what we're talking about is the biggest piece to me that's confusing is why there's not widespread planning around the emotional challenges that all this has brought up. It's just there's there's no plan around it. It's like most of it is like monetary or like, you know, insured level things where where programs are there. There's just the, the, um, because the, the, the people who, who are, they're motivated and they, they sacrifice their kids. It's like, I don't know what they're feeding. I, I I don't know enough of them. I have some friends who are super successful, but not at that sort of, top 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 level and so it's really interesting it's inspiring for me to hear about a guy like bill that's actually inspiring to me
0: no and bill really is an inspiring guy and he's written a great book with my other friend peter sims called true north where he talks about the importance of values and character and things like that and he's taught at the harvard business school for many years now talking about these topics so definitely another great guy to get to know i will say that i think that the reason why we don't hear more about the importance of the mental health element of it is because there is this stigma. Uh, We were talking before we started recording about my friend, Lenny, who had left his position in the government of Governor Gavin Newsom because the stresses, he was leading California's economic response and the stress of working endless hours, eating poorly, never exercising, all these things, uh, in his attempt to help people had pushed him over the edge into depression. And he had to take a step away from the job. He had to resign, go into treatment, really get right because his wife noticed that he was really not himself. And she forced him to go to the doctor. And the doctor said, Lenny, do you want to see your grandkids grow up? You got to change. Cause if you keep going, wow. the way you're going, you are not going to be there. And he made the change. And then he wrote about it and a bunch of his oh. friends, and this is a guy who ran mckinsey's global initiative a really successful incredible impressive guy his friends told him don't publish that piece about your depression because if yeah. you let people know that you suffer from depression your career will be over mm. now, this is somebody who's accomplished so much could get any job he wants and his friends are still telling him don't put that out there that's an illustration of the kind of stigma we still have in this country around mental health. And again, the NBA, as it has in many ways, has led the way with someone like Paul George talking about his experiences in the bubble. Uh, previously, various NBA players like Kevin Love and Kevin DeMar DeRozan Love, yeah. have talked about yeah. the issues that they've faced in, with mental health. Again, the fact that these are incredibly wealthy and successful people does not exempt them from the strains of mental health. In fact, the pressures on them are often greater than
1: they are on many other people. Yeah, I, it's, it is, uh, hey man, if you write those books and it actually opens up things for these conversations, to me like that's where it's at. I, did you ever see the movie Ordinary People? I did. I don't remember that's a movie. It as
0: well because I watched, I remember exactly when I watched it. I actually, we watched it as part of the psychology class that I took in high school because obviously oh, psychology yeah. plays a very key role in the movie. Yes. Uh, but I don't remember it super well. I remember the basic outlines, though.
1: Yeah. So it, it was, um, it's a movie that, it's one of the movies that I think should be remade now. So the, the core piece of the story, um, had Timothy Hutton, Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, and Judd Hirsch. Those are the four that I remember. And That's there was right. a woman who I can't remember what her name was. But those are the four main, main ones. And the storyline was... Um, uh, uh Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore are married. Uh Timothy Hutton is their son. And uh I don't know how long before that, but there's him and his brother, his older brother, who was like the golden child, got into a boating problem and then his brother died. And um Judd Hirsch was the therapist. Uh and you know, and, and literally like with the big sweater thing, the button sweater thing, like that's how he would show up. And Judd Hirsch, too. Like Judd Hirsch was like, John Hirsch was like the, the poor man's Alan Alda, or like the little rougher Alan Alda. You know what I mean? Like he yes. had that thing about him. And because Alan Alda was like the sensitive guy and, um, and super interesting in so many of the roles that he was in. Um, anyway, so the two things I remember about it were that um, the, the way they acted was the way things looked on the inside. Mary Tyler Moore was really concerned about how they looked on the outside, really concerned. And so they never really talked about what was going on. And the other thing I remember about it was um, the way, because Timothy Hutton was a high school kid and I was a high school kid when I watched it too. I was at a Catholic high school. I can't remember. It might've been like a family values class or something like that. But anyway, so we were, which is kind of progressive. They showed it to us. Um, Anyway, so the way he talked to the therapist like really earnestly and the therapist was pressing him to talk about stuff that he wouldn't talk about. And then there's a, ultimately a, a, just a, like a heartwarming scene, like a really heartwarming scene at the end where he's talking to his dad and they're like having like a real conversation. And, um, and uh, it was for me, it was, it, was, it was one of those bookmark moments where I, I, I realized there, there are people out there that talk about stuff in a real way. I just don't, ha- I don't know how to do it. And the truth is today, like I had a brother who had, who passed away. He, um, he died when I was 25, he was 27. Um, and he had a lot of mental health issues and we didn't know how to talk about him. Literally didn't know how to talk about him. And it's like, if you're a kid and, and it's still true today, it's like, you see somebody behave inappropriately and without context, you don't know that they're doing that. It's like the did you see Joker? Did you see the movie Joker? I haven't yet. Okay. Well, there's one element that you don't it's not going to ruin the movie or anything, but there's one element of the thing about where it explains why the Joker laughs. And people with sometimes people like my brother in serious situations, he would laugh. Like in dark situations, he would because he didn't know how to process stuff. Right. And so in the movie, he has that condition and he has a card like a beat up card that he hands out to people that says I laugh because I have a mental illness. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. So um, the point is that this just like, that's where I think, and and it's like, it's interesting because out of Silicon Valley, like there's actually more, you see more efforts to uh, create mental health oriented companies, apps or whatever, calm, whatever it is to work with it, it's like, it's just the, the core of the conversation. Like the overarching thing for me is stuff that's in the dark sucks. It just sucks. We should really talk about it. It's like your friend, it, and and it's a real thing. Like the friends who are telling, who told Lenny like not to write it because it ruined his career. It's like, they're actually trying to help. Absolutely, they, they, they had what they trying. thought
0: were his best interests at heart, but it didn't mean that right. they were right. It, when did you publish it? It was just a couple months ago. I'll send you the link. It's a great piece.
1: Yeah, yeah. And again,
0: it, it very much fits in with the kind of values that you have. Uh, I do think that given that we sort of talked about some of these issues, it's really important for people to understand the context behind your life. So yeah. maybe if we can, an hour yeah, into the ahead. conversation, <laughs> we can talk about growing up in the Midwest, because I think when you describe yeah. how, and the way you grew up and then the family you grew up in, because when you yeah. describe how you know, you've had, you originally had these difficulties talking about these issues and the, there was this darkness and there were things left unsaid, I feel that it all comes out of the origin story. So yeah. talk about growing up as a kid yeah. in Indiana.
1: Yeah, so I, I grew up in Indiana and um, in Indiana, I always say that Indiana, Um, diversity is white people and tan white people. So it was mostly, mostly people who look like me. Um, But I I grew up in a small town called South, South Bend, which has Notre Dame in it. So um, it's notable for that. And, and honestly, not much else. Um, Although it was a good, good town to grow up in. And I grew up with four brothers and, um, and I was, and still am a super sensitive guy. So like I'm really conversant with my emotions and free to share them and, Um, I had a father who was um, very expressive. He's a very expressive man. He passed away in March from uh, dementia, Alzheimer's. I'm not sure which condition it actually was. I don't know if we ever got a full diagnosis of it, but he passed away after fighting that for like four years. And, um, you know, I grew up in a time where, like many of us, uh, uh, and I'm fighting this right now, like this is real for me at this moment. It's like, like we grew up in a time where it was like, it was a little bit stigmatized to ask for help, which is why when I was watching Ordinary People, I was like stunned. It was like the first time I saw Jurassic Park in a theater, I remember the moment I saw the first dinosaur on this giant screen, my mouth was wide open. because so I couldn't believe that technology could create this thing. I had the same experience when I saw the opening credits of Toy Story. Um, so I was amazed by, it. and it's not that big a deal today if you if you watch it but anyway so so on the one hand it's true like you grew up in a time where it's like people just generally didn't ask for help although that wasn't 100 percent true because there was some people who got it and you know it's like people did the best they could I hear that a lot and I, I think about it myself more than necessarily blame anybody in my life but it's like you know I I often ask myself, am I doing the best I can? Because I'm often convinced that I'm probably not. I probably could be doing a little bit more. And it's helpful to do that and not beat the the tar out of myself. Um, Anyway, so I grew up with four brothers. I was the fourth brother, uh, fourth of five. And the the reality was like in that environment, the best you could do was problem solve. Because we're all two years apart. And so there just wasn't a lot of room to like talk about how you felt. That just wasn't part of the thing. And it, it, it did develop one skill in me that, is, that I love, which is like at the dinner table, if you've got four brothers and a mother and father and there's constant conflict with four brothers, I developed a skill of being able to pay attention to a lot of things all at once. So I could, I could get a lot of inputs. And make sense of them, and, and keep myself relatively safe. And I didn't—I just didn't really have language around this, and, and so it was like, um, you know, and 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 it was, it was a, um, it was just a very—it was just an interesting thing. It was a very male-dominated household, and yet my father is really expressive, and you te- would tell me he loved me. He would hold my hand. He'd kiss me. Um, which was really important. My mom was super reliable and, you know, supported me. And, and, you know, it was was like, my mom was the tough one. And my dad was the one who generally um, supported me. And, um, but my mom supported me in her own way, but uh, it's just like, like I, um, I just didn't have a way to process all the stuff that was going on because when my brother became a, a teenager, the the one who the one who died, it was right above me, and uh, you know it was interesting. He used to he he's a brother, right? but that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't uh, um, excuse it. But he used to physically hit me a lot mm-hmm. and intimidate me a lot. And um, recently, I read like just just out of the blue, I read a bunch of his writings shortly before he died where he was writing about some really, really vulnerable things that I happened to get. Um, and he um, wrote about how he was teased mercilessly by his, um, and picked on by his fellow classmates. And he used to do that to me. And I, I part of me is starting to think that he did it for me because he wanted to prepare me. But the interesting thing was, if anybody picked on me, he would, Eat the tar out of them. He, he would he was he was really physical with them when, when they would pick on me and uh, and so you know the thing is is that um, not having the skills to be able to reveal myself and, and make peace with or even have like words of how to talk about what was going on inside me um, was something that I could uh that was just like the movie is like I could present a certain thing because I was smart, I was funny, still am funny. Um I, I I could I'm articulate, although I'm not particularly articulate right now. But and it's like and inside it was just like I was just boiling with these feelings. And um, um you know and it's just like over the course of time, over those years, from that point where It's probably why like, I'm a heart-moved guy, which is why when I arrived here in San Francisco, I was like, I'm moving there. And I chose, it's so funny, man. I chose accounting as a a profession, which is like the worst possible profession for me.
0: I was going to eventually get to that. Something that I pointed out to you is like, wait a minute, why are you in accounting and finance when it is absolutely the worst fit with
1: who you are, but it's family legacy, right? Family legacy. And it was, it was, you know, with my brother going sideways, you know, to a certain extent, my parents are like, let's get this one through and get him safe because he's got the skills. But it's like, I had several, I had the dean of the accounting school sit down with me and say, you're really bright. You're a really engaging guy. Have you thought about something other than accounting? I almost got fired my first year at KPMG. I was that close to getting fired. And some guy took me under his wing. Um, his name was Dave and he he helped me out. But um, I remember I had a conversation with my father, uh, the fr- like early on in my career, where I was having difficulties. I almost gotten fired, and he, he's like, he's like, in a in a way, he's trying to, in the same way that your friends tried to tell your other friend to not publish the article. My dad was trying to help me, and he said to me um, something to the effect of, "You have to suppress your personality." So I've got a really outlandish personality, and he's like, "You have to suppress that personality if you want to." which I ended up doing really well at this accounting firm. Um, but um, my, my uh, I don't know, my, my career is like um, is like a game of Caterpillar. Remember that game Caterpillar?
0: I don't actually know. The video game?
1: game? Okay. Oh, is it? Centipede. 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 I know That's Centipede. Yeah, Centipede. It was just like each stop was like one of those things killed. And it was like a mushroom. That You know what I'm saying? It was just like. Send you going. So my, the my, my, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My career path is really jagged. You have super successful people on your podcast. And I have a different version of success and have made some choices that we'll get into in other podcasts. Cause we're almost an hour and a half into this one. But um, the, I will tell you. To to move it forward a little bit because I, I went through some darkness that we can get into at some point, mm-hmm. which feeds everything that I am right now, and so I um, I can find gratitude great for it. I still have some things that I did during that time which don't I don't feel great about, and I'm still working through that. I will say that having a daughter changed everything for me. Like it literally changed everything for me, and um, I uh, I remember we, we had her. We, we had me and my, me and her mom had her, and everything was, everything was pretty okay until she's about eight or nine. And then all these things changed. And I, I went down to the Packard Hospital in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to this event, and it was for dads of daughters. And um, I, I went into this um, um, conference room, and there were like 80 dads. And like a lot of them, like, you know, um, what are those jackets called with no sleeves? I can't remember what they're called. Um, oh, the, uh, the-, the
0: Patagonia vests. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: But this was like, this was, you know, um, 10 years ago. So they were actually on the, they, they were early adopters there, but they were big. and there were Sandhill, you know, Sandhill guys. Did you ever see the movie The Impossibles? The Impossible? With the, the, the Pixar one, with the, the, the incredible that has all these Incredibles. Oh my God. The Impossibles. What am I talking about? Incredible. It sounds like an interesting movie. <laughs> but yes, well, The Incredibles. The, the, the dad in The Incredibles, he gets into his car, and his is hes giant in the car. Yeah. And so that's what we all looked. And it had the little desk that flip over. You know what I'm saying? It's like you sit in a <laughs> chair, and it's like this little thing that you turn over. And we we're all these big dudes in there, and this person came out and started talking. And she started talking about how to relate to your daughter now. And like the first thing this person said to us was, she doesn't want you to fix stuff. That's not what she's looking for. And it was, like, it was like some weird combination of like Tyler Durden fight club or Kaiser Soze, you know, usual suspects where, simultaneously like 80 men's mind were blown. And she went on to talk to us about all this stuff. And I remember all of us furiously scribbling on these little pads that we had, where um, I had the blessed experience of finally, you know, at what, what was I 42 or something like that, having the imperative of raising someone who means more than the world to me, that requires me to look at life in a whole different way. And what, what it has ultimately required me to do is what I said earlier, which is just so important. We have to work on our own stuff. It's, it's, it's so, it's just so simple. And, um, you know, it's something that, uh, it's like, it's the, it's the equivalent, like me having a daughter is the, uh, much higher equivalent of you getting your parking spot <laughs> at my 50th birthday party it's the I'm divine not an
0: intervention
1: <laughs> i just just in case my daughter listens to this sweetheart you are not a parking spot i just want you to know that i just I want sure you hope to know that share this
0: with her i think she would uh, i think she would enjoy it not there's a parking spot but you know enjoy the conversation well
1: yeah she, she does And we talk about it and um, thank God, she, in a lot of ways, like, she, um, like, she's not responsible for this. And the truth is that relationship, it, um, like, I wouldn't have died, but it, it literally saved my life because I, I now had a reason, like, I had an identifiable reason to open the door to that thing that I never had when I was a kid. Yeah. It's not my parents' fault, it's my responsibility. Why it took me until I was 42 is a story perhaps for future podcasts, but- There um, are many
0: men for whom that day never comes.
1: That's true. That's 100% true. And, you know, it is, that makes me sad. And by the way, it's also true with women too. It's not 100% in the domain of men. Is there are true. women out there
0: it is disproportionately
1: have, men but it can affect men correct. correct so you know it's um it's something where you know it's, it's it's something where for me if there are people who are still listening first of all i think if so, i think we should do something i think if somebody's still listening at this point yes we should give them some kind of code word and i will send them a fun size candy bar of their choice
0: well, why don't you pick a code word? And so first of all, what is the code word you want them to use? And secondly, how can they contact
1: you to claim this prize? I know, I know the code word I want to use. Go ahead. Because <laughs> about, I don't know, it was about 25 minutes ago. <laughs> you just have this thing. By the way, if, if it's, if my life depends on it, like someone's going to kill me and the it's like that Game of Thrones thing where somebody fought for a Tyrion, like he chose someone to fight for him, although he died, I think. He did. But
0: he got his head squashed like a grape. But yeah, he got his head because squashed. he was showboating.
1: He was showboating. Right. Exactly. Um, if my life depended on it, like someone was the gun and go, I'm gonna kill you. And there like the, the the whether I lived or died depended upon someone playing a trivia game and I can only choose one person, it would be Chris Ye. I just, 100%, it would be Chris ye
0: And you would be wise to make that choice.
1: <laughs> so, um, so uh, I forgot, what, what were we talking about right before that? You're oh, about, I know what it was. You're the, about the, to come up yeah. with
0: a code word, and yes, how to reach the code to claim word. the fun size candy bar.
1: I would be shocked if anybody claimed it. But the, the, the word I'm going to choose, the reason I brought this up is because about 20 or 25 minutes ago, you fired off the name of a bunch of authors. Mm-hmm. Of, which, of course, when you say that, it's like, it's like, you can't, like, you may have just, you may have mentioned, like you said, Sonia somewhere or other. That person may be like the backup point guard for the Seattle Storm, but I don't know it. But it doesn't matter, right? Because you said it in a way that was super, you sounded reasonable, like you sound like you knew what you're talking about, but then shortly you see, quote these really high-end writers, and shortly thereafter you use the word "boringer." You said the word "boringer," so that, here's exactly, the that's the code word. That's the code word. It's like it's like Pee-wee's Playhouse. If somebody, if somebody, um, if somebody uh, has gotten this far, if you send an email to Here's, I'll tell you what my email address is because people will get this, I hope. The first word is, or the first part is agape, which is the unconditional love, uh, the Greek word for unconditional love. Agape, A-G-A-P-E, T-T, like Tim Taylor, at gmail.com. If you text, if you email me and the subject matter is boringer, I will send you a fun-sized candy bar of your choice. And I may even send... (laughs) digital photograph of me and Chris. Maybe I'll send him a, you know, like, and just digitally sign it. Best wishes, Tim and Chris.
0: Well, I think that we have been on many adventures together. So it could be an entire series.
1: It could be an entire series. But um, regardless, uh, you know, that's a whole other set of topics we can talk about. And truth is, man, dude, I'll talk about anything with you. It'll be interesting to hear actually what this, what this all has been because I feel like we've gone everywhere and I, I literally could talk to you for another hour. It's a piece of cake. No, this is going to have
0: to be multiple pieces in order to make it all work. But, but in order to, in order to sort of put a button on it, yeah, let's let's get to, let's focus on that moment where you're sitting in that tiny desk and you're realizing that, you know what, I've got to work on my stuff. So that was the moment that was, that was it before you hadn't sought, help before then, you hadn't tried to to resolve things before then, that was the moment that changed things.
1: I don't know that I connected the fact that I need help. I don't know if I connected it at that moment. What I did connect 100% is that the way I was showing up for her and I would ultimately find out the way I'm showing up with everybody in my life, it had to change. It had to change. And, um, the the hard truth of the matter is it took me a while to actually get help. Um, and it's just, it's like a whole different world. It's just a whole different world. And it's, it's ironically the world that I really wanted when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, like, it's just like, it's, Expressing our feelings gets a bad rap. It's like there's tremendous strength in that. Tremendous, like tremendous strength in that. And um, what ended up happening with me is I just needed to make a series of mistakes before I realized I, I can't do this on my own. And so I sought help in a bunch of conventional and unconventional ways. Some of which we can talk about at some point. But um, it, it that mo that evening, in in that auditorium with these men of, uh, who, you know, in in the Packard hospital, which means it's in Palo Alto and and it's sort of self selecting. There's going to be some people who are successful there. It was, uh, it was life changing. And you talk about your books, like, like, we'll talk about this more at some point. It's like, that's the relationship for me. That means more than anything, any other relationship that's out there, the dad and daughter relationship. And it's the relationship that I would hope at some level, increasingly men are willing to, because it's like, sorry, I I know we got to put a button on this, but it's like, no, 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 please. The the act of the act of getting help is the second step of first thinking. I don't know what I'm doing. Like admitting, I don't know what I'm doing. It's like, I can't handle this. So it's like, so it's like when you say that was the moment I know I needed help. It's like awareness sometimes gets uh, the short shrift because it's so momentous that running to a solution isn't necessarily the first thing I think of. It's more just like the moment I realize I don't know if I can just sit with that for a little while. Because sometimes if I run out and try and solve it, I end up solving the wrong thing rather than like, Hey, let's actually explore the reality that I don't know what I'm doing. And so that evening was, uh, was substantial in my, in my life and her life.
0: And the reason that she saved you that you had a motivation, you weren't willing to go for the help to save yourself. You didn't value yourself enough to get that help.
1: That's probably true. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't want to say that's true and it's probably true. Like, because I had a lot of years where I could have gotten help and I didn't. And, um, uh, but first, it was such an imperative to me. And I didn't even really know it. I've really gotten to know it like over the past five or six years. And, and again, when you say and it's true, she did save my life. But it's not like my daughter saved my life. Therefore, I owe her my life. It's just more like the divine intervention of having a relationship where one of the key skills to actually be successful in, in raising and empowering a magnificent daughter is... A high dose of emotional fluency for someone like me who is super sensitive and also has all the iQ skills coming out, the yin yang um, it's 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 um it's more it's it's less like she saved my life. I was gonna blow my brains out more like she saved my life, she just is was the impetus for having this new way of relating and being bold enough to say this is important to me, I wanna try and live this way. Even though there's all this momentum around not asking for help or not talking about the difficult things, because it's the, when I write on Facebook or when I used to blog, although I do some, some of that now, it's like, right on Facebook, it's the stuff that gets the most, the most engagement, when I like write honestly and authentically about what it means to be a father of a daughter, it's like, that's the stuff that gets the engagement.
0: And if there's someone who's listening right now, who's thinking to themselves after hearing about ordinary people, after hearing about your experiences and they're thinking to themselves, you know, maybe I should get help. Maybe I should Mm -hmm. work on my stuff. What would you advise them to do? What should be their first step?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Because the thing is, is that um, realizing you need help is a gigantic. Like finally realizing, like I need help, is like a gigantic thing. And so, like if I, if if you, if you, if you said, hey Tim, I want you to have coffee with this this woman or man, and they're having some challenges, and you know I think you might be able to help them. I don't know why, but go talk to them, which I would do in a heartbeat for you because I would do anything for you. Um, and, and that's what they said to me. And they were sitting across from me. I think what I, I think what I would start with is because here's the deal. Like let me just step back for a second. Mm-hmm. There's more approval for people asking for help today than maybe ever in the past. That's right. There also happens to be more resources to help, right? Um, and it's a challenge because Like for example, I've known people who can't keep a career, went bankrupt multiple times, have difficulty in relationship, can't keep a relationship, whatever it is, they they're just they don't show up, blah blah blah, and so they decide to become a life coach. I mean, it's like it's like, (laughs) I mean, those who can't do teach, right? And and those who can't teach coach, No. no, but there's I have a lot of friends who are exceptionally talented at being coaches and. What is, what is troubling is that if this woman or man that you talked to me about is, and said, hey, I need help, I would, I would say, hey, start by like, taking a deep breath and saying, if you believe in God, thank God I'm willing to get help because it's not easy to ask for help. For whatever stupid reason, we have been created with this flaw where we don't want to ask for help. And, and so I, I, if I were in front of her or him, I would start by just saying, hey, this is awesome that you're there. And um, what I would suggest is like, don't, I would just say, don't try and figure out, okay, this is what's going on, therefore I need to go see this, this person who serves in this modality. It's too confusing, there's too many people. What I would suggest is, if you're at that point, talk to trusted friends or trusted friends of friends, and ask if they know they can recommend anybody. Because the challenge is, there's tons of coaches out there, and there's a percentage of them that are that are just outstanding. And then there's a percentage of them and therapists and psych- psychiatrists. Because I've I've been to them all, man. If they, one of these days, I'm going to get together all my old therapists, psychiatrists, and coaches, and just get on like a love boat or something like that. We'll have a party on the Lido deck. Um, but, uh, um, um, or maybe just I'll get together and go bowling. Um, but the, the, um, the, the important thing is the hands they end up with, um, end up in, you just hope that they're qualified. And what I would also say to that person is, hey, when you start talking to the person, you do a session or two. And if it doesn't fit, just move on, go to the next one because then you, you'll eventually find one that resonates with you and talk about it. And honestly, like for me, if someone's really at that point where it's like, a, it's like to just my personal experiences, early on when I got help, I didn't need a ton of solutions. I remember one of the first people I went to get help from who really could have helped me, but I was not 100% ready. She did hand me a book called um, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Children. It was the first spiritual book I ever read, and it was so good. It was so good. And I resonated with so many things that were in it, but I just couldn't hear it at that time. And so, like, there's just this thing where, like, when, if someone says to me, I need help, it's like, find a safe person to tell that, support that person in having made that admission, ask friends or friends of friends for help, like, it's okay. So more, it's, it's the equivalent of people, the kids in college who say they know what they want to do. Most of them have no clue. Most of them really have no clue what they want to do. And it's the same thing with people, with people who say they don't need help or don't ask for help. It's like, most people need help. That's my particular opinion of some kind. And it's not like, hey, we're all in the darkness and we need to be pulled up from the tar pits. Like some people just need help in everyday life and like someone to bounce things off of. And Let's get a set of tools that help, but it's like it's just collectively that there's, there's this thing where it was in the darkness, and boy, once you step into the light, it is amazing. And the great thing is, by the way, that person, it won't, it won't really land with them at that time because it people to say it to me it didn't make sense, but it's like, I do know this. With my range of darkness and lightness, it gives me access to empathy and compassion to people that isn't as... Um, easy for others to get. I can come in open heart, full mind, everything, with people who are going through real difficult times, and I can relate. So that's a long winded answer to your question. Did I actually answer your question.
0: You did. You did. The most yeah. important thing you said was you've got to reach out to your friend, yeah. to your friends of friends, to get recommendations, and that's yeah. important for two reasons. One is to point you in the direction of resources that are going to work. But the other is to just begin the process of reaching out to other people. And what people will find when they do that, and they may be able to realize it themselves by thinking about their own lives and when people reach out to them, that one of the great gifts that you can give your friends is to let them help you. Yeah. If anyone comes to you, if somebody who is a dear friend comes to you and asks for help, you're happy that you have a chance to help them. And it's a gift that you can give to them. It is something that is going to make them feel so good. Being able to help you, being able to make a difference. And don't think about, get caught up in this notion of, well, what will people think? The fact is, people will think, I'm glad that you came to me. And I'm glad I have a chance to help.
1: Well, what you said earlier about your friend Lenny is the truth is there are people out there that, that won't receive it like that. And uh, you help a ton of people. I, and I, you and I have talked about this. We talked about this in our podcast. It's like, that's a place for you to grow, my friend, to let other people help you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm, that's not I, always easy. I'm
0: not, I'm not as good as it as I would like to portray myself as being.
1: Yeah, it's ironic because, well, I love you. I know I love you. Um, and I don't, I'm, I'm assuming more than your family and me love you. So I, hope. Um, I think that's a pretty safe assumption. <laughs> that's certainly the hope. I, th- I think there's data to back up. There are more people than your family and me that love you. That's for sure.
0: Well, that may be the topic for another podcast, figuring out what kind of help I should be asking for.
1: That's a great idea. That would I be think an that's interesting. An awesome. Idea. I would love to talk about that. Excellent. I want, I want to see more of this. I do want to see more of you revealing yourself in your podcast because I think people... I'd love to see more of you in the podcast. That's that's what I'm that
0: is the exact reason I asked you to come on, Tim, because I knew (laughs) if you came on,
1: it would inevitably happen. Yeah. I don't know if if you're gonna put this thing out, again, boringer, agapade at gmail.com for free fun size candy bar. It's interesting because if you let's say you actually put this out in its current form, yeah. It's like most of your podcasts are like 30 minutes or like the precious one was like 52 minutes. And it's like all of a sudden there's this one that's like an hour and thirty minutes long. Like, what do you make of that?
0: Well, Maybe. you know what we'll do is I'm going to put it out, and we'll see how many people listen. To I get the statistics. <laughs> hey, but I cool. hope you'll share it with the people in your life of, as well, because, yeah, you know, again, in happens. a time like this pandemic, when we're not able to see each other face to face, yeah, getting a chance to really hear someone, a friend of yours, in deep conversation for an hour, an hour and a half, even two hours. That's something that's really cool. It's something that I think helps refuel the soul.
1: Totally. I feel refueled, particularly because I started out by drinking a medium latte. So I need the refueling. It's perfect.
0: Excellent. Well, Tim, thank you for coming on. I hope that you will be on again soon. And thank you, everyone out there. Don't forget, that's (laughs) agapett at gmail.com. Use the subject line, Boringer. (laughs) and specify the fun size candy you want. This is Chris Ye and thank you for listening.